Welcome to episode 24 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Kara Furman, I'm Derek Gottlieb. We're joined today by two incredible thinkers who work at the intersection of questions around education, childhood, belonging, community, and freedom, among other things. This is a fascinating conversation, and I'd like to just get right into it. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Kara. Enjoy. Welcome. It is fantastic to see both of you and to be in conversation. Um, I believe that I have met both of you asynchronously, but I don't think I've met either of you really at the same time or um, synchronously. So this is a lovely opportunity. We are here today to talk about freedom and freedom in relation to justice and belonging. So welcome. And Carla, can you start us off by introducing yourself a little bit? Sure. My name is Carla Shalaby. I work um, at the University of Michigan, um, but I'm in a position there where I get to be full-time in a school that's currently serving K-3 children and will add a grade every year uh, in the city of Detroit. And just grateful to be with you. That's great. Thank you. And uh, do you pronounce your name Thea? Is that right? Um, I'm Thea Abelhaj. Uh, I am a professor of education at Barnard College at Columbia University, and I'm an educational anthropologist who um, has the, um, I think really I have a great job because I get to study things that are important to me. And I think a lot about uh, transnational migration, conflict, and citizenship education. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks both for uh, that lovely introduction. Thea, just to not keep you in suspense for this uh, entire episode, I also have met neither of you in person and have only only really met you via citations and other people's work and the work that you've done yourself. So when I was trying to remember when we had scheduled this recording, I decided I was I just searched my email for your name, Thea, because I don't have a lot of you know, uh, emails in my inbox that, uh, look the same. So it was like just a conve- it's more convenient than searching Kara's name, for instance, where we have tons of conversations. <laughs> and the only conversation that it turned up was one from 2015 in which you had emailed me about unsettled belonging because you were in search of an indexer and I index academic books. I was, my schedule was full which I deeply regret right now, but I was like, I was like, oh, I had not even remembered that correspondence. So that was this near miss little opportunity that uh, we might have had to meet. Anyway, that's that little that's, story. That's very funny. <laughs> well, see all these connections and I, I am, I'm so thrilled to be here with all of you. And I know when you invited us, you had no idea that Carla and I have a long history and friendship. Mm-hmm. So it's so fun to be here, to be able to be in conversation with Carla yeah, about yeah, these was- ideas. Teaching fourth and fifth grade in New Jersey, I decided to just start taking graduate courses again. And Thea's was the first I landed in at Rutgers. Um, and she, that course is really the reason that I ended up pursuing graduate education. And she's been like a key part of my life personally and professionally since then. And that was maybe, I don't know, 2005. It's been yeah, a really a long, long time. time it's been a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. So unlike you, Derek, I did have the opportunity to work on some of her books. When I was uh-huh. a graduate student at Rutgers, I was transcribing her interviews for not not Unsettled Belonging, but her first book. So 
I didn't miss my opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) I can only live in regret. (laughs) Yes. I want to say, too, that, um, Thea, I met your work through Ashley Taylor, who is a colleague and friend of mine in Philosophy of Ed. And she gave me a collection of books that of uh, articles that I should follow on disability when I was doing a lit review on something. And so it's kind of neat because as I was thinking about who who to pair for this um, podcast today, I was thinking about people whose work seemed to have synergy together and learned, as you noted, that there was a lot more synergy than I even knew about. So with all that, Derek, you want to start us off with the first question? Sure. Uh, Basically, the way that we try to get into these episodes is to ask each of you to uh, tell us the story of how you became focused on these issues that we are talking about uh, today. What was it that led you to study these particular things and in the particular ways that you do? Thea, would you like to go first with this question? Um, Sure. So um, it's kind of hard from, it was kind of hard when I was thinking about this to think about one story because I've actually been studying these issues um, across many decades in very different forms. But I thought I would uh, say a little bit about how I came to the, you know, really what's been the core of my work for the last, um, I guess at this point, 20 years, which is um, really thinking about uh, conflict and education and the consequences for young people um, that unfold in their schools and elsewhere. And um, so I got involved with uh, this community of Palestinian American transnational youth. I myself am Palestinian American also um, in the aftermath of 9-11 when a community organizer um, invited me to come to a high school meeting between parents and um, the principal at this school. And the parents were telling the principal these stories about what was happening to their children in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, stories that I'm sure people would be um, not, I mean, maybe often people are surprised, but, you know, there was a lot of uh, real targeting of uh, Palestinian and other Muslim and Arab youth in the school. And the principal kept saying, oh, these are just, um, you know, exceptions, I, you know, I've told, I've, I've told everybody that I will not tolerate, there'll be no, to, you know, zero tolerance for intolerance. Um, and so it was, it was clearly this, um, you know, this, another instance of the ways that the structures of racism are invisible to within the kind of um, uh, liberal public discourse about multiculturalism. This is a school that serves everyone. Of course, there'll be some misunderstandings. And so that really sort of set me on a track to think in this particular context, what were the issues that were constraining freedom for young people that were making justice be very difficult to um, to uh, achieve? And also, what were the messages about belonging and not and not belonging? And I'll say more about that as the conversation goes on. But I think we should hear from Carla about her story. What a lovely segue. Yeah, I was thinking about this question, too. But I do have really clear moments, um, too, in particular, that had a lot to do with each other. This may surprise you or it may just be just the most beautiful coincidence, but it was a story that they had told me when we were together um, 
when I was a graduate student, or maybe I wasn't even a graduate student then. Anyway, she was telling me about a young child who was very, very important to her, who had just been diagnosed with diabetes. She was a kindergartner at the time. And she told me a story about um, her kindergartner having to, you know, bring in her own snacks or not just daily, you know, snack time, but also when they had class parties, right? Most of the snacks that are provided are things that a diabetic child can't eat. And so they had been thinking a lot about, you know, what would it mean for the kids to get to work together in a kindergarten class to develop a menu that every child could eat everything on, right? So that it would be a moment of not just thinking, how do we accommodate and include this one child, which largely falls privately on an individual family, but instead, how does this thing, which requires an accommodation, become instead an opportunity for all the kids to have a really meaningful real life um, problem of inclusion to work on together? And what does it mean for kids who are five to get that opportunity? Where does it grow from there? So that was a first really important kind of pivotal moment. The thing that I had always been interested in is how do young children make sense of difference? How do they get ideas about difference? And what roles do schools play in that? And her story was an important first moment in shifting away from um, individually addressing children who have any kind of difference, intervening on individuals, and instead thinking about how is this individual providing an opportunity for real collective community learning. So that was a key story that I think about maybe every week, honestly, Thea. Then I had an echo of it a decade later, and that really solidified the work that became Troublemakers when I was um, in graduate school with a dear friend whose son was in kindergarten and having just an impossible time behaviorally. And I was uh, interviewing him about his experiences with his son because we were so stumped about how to intervene. We were two doctoral students at Harvard in education who had no idea how to help this kid or this teacher in real time. And he said, yeah, I know that Isaac is really, you know, the one that is having an overblown reaction but he's reacting to things that are harmful to all kids. And it was, again, a moment of a person explicitly shifting the lens away from one kid requiring accommodation and instead saying, what is this kid showing us as an opportunity for all of us to learn better things about how to include and belong? So those two stories echo for me a lot. And I came to really thinking about how do we, how do we treat moments of difference as really meaningful opportunities for young children to form very different ideas than we tend to have as adults. So funny, Carla, that you're taking back to that story, because that, of course, pushes me way back to my first book, Elusive Justice, which I wasn't really going to talk about. But I want to say about that, that I, so that book is a book where I really um, look at sort of publicly circulating what I call justice claims following Iris Young. So I've been playing with philosophers for a long time. And I hope that, you know, all of you philosophers really forgive me for, you know, dabbling uh, as an anthropologist. But, um, but uh, you know, Young really gave me this framework to think about the ways that a lot of the kind of conflicts and conversations that we're having in school spaces are really forms of situated political dialogue. Um, you know, real political dialogue in everyday life. Mm -hmm. And it's because of what came out of that first book for me, 
where I really had thought about a framework for thinking about justice that, um, you know, that really had these four components for me. One was really thinking deeply about what it means to hold each individual as an equal, equally valuable human life. Um, and the second was to really think that difference is never difference on its own. It's always relational. And again, there I was really using the work of people like Martha Minow um, and to, to think about how difference implies um, when differences matter, it's because there's inequality in power, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't really matter if you and I have different hair color, if that's not, you know, mm-hmm. relevant. Um, and to think really about how, what it means to think about inclusion substantively and not just sort of as an accommodation. And then, and then really that all requiring us to rethink the institutional structures of school so, and I, I, I know I have permission to say this, but it was really the, having that framework that allowed me to advocate for my, one of my own children when she was diagnosed with diabetes at that young age of five, mm-hmm. and to really push and insist that the school think about changing the routine structures of everyday life in kindergarten so that she could be fully a part of the kindergarten and not just pulled out and differentiated at these different moments. And I think that you're right, Carla, that 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 kind of way of thinking and shifting is critical for for questions of um, belonging, right? Real deep fundamental inclusion uh, requires that we understand the power structures that include some people and exclude others. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's funny. And thanks for sort of connecting to that story. Story has an impact. Thank you both. So we'll get into why philosophy in a little bit, but um, I'll just say we strongly um, encourage playing and dabbling in philosophy and philosophy of ed. If if it gets anybody hooked a little bit uh, through some play, that's, that's a great thing. Um, We're going to ask, and you've talked about it a little bit, but ask you to speak more about what you found out about these issues through your research. And Carla, I'm going to ask you to go first and to do two things um, in addition to that answer. One is just to tell us a little bit, you reference troublemakers, but tell us a little bit about what it is and um, give us a little more context for that. And also you speak, in Troublemakers, um, which is your, one of your your books, you talk about um, the canary in the coal mine. And I'm wondering if, as you answer, you can talk a little bit about how that metaphor was helpful for you and, and what that means. Yeah. So anytime I'm explaining what Troublemakers was about, I always start with explaining the canaries in the coal mine metaphor, which again was not my metaphor, came from this father, right? From that's That's how he talked about his son. He said he is having a really um, harmed response, but it's the poison in the air that is the reason for it. And so he used this metaphor to help me think about, you know, these kids who are showing very, very visible signs of suffering through undesirable and challenging behaviors. Um, Thinking of them as canaries in the coal mine can shift our view away from what is broken and bad and wrong about this individual child. And instead, what are their reactions of suffering signaling to us 
about the poisons that are in our shared air that, as Thea earlier said, are invisible to those of us who aren't particularly fragile to that, those particular kinds of assaults, right? And so if you're a kid who has an exceptional amount of trouble sitting still, you're going to be a kid who gets up a lot. But that doesn't mean that you're a kid who should then be forced into compliance to sit down. That means that you are then a signal that, you know what, maybe it's an actually an unreasonable demand for kids as young as five to have to sit as long as they sit. So troublemakers is 100% based on that metaphor and, and trying to shift every educator's view away from what is wrong with this child and instead what is this child responding to in the in the environment and what might we learn about how to change the environment around the child in such ways as to structure justice for every child so it is a study a close study of four kids who were flagged by their teachers as significantly challenging in terms of their behaviors these are kids who in other contexts may not have been similarly flagged they are kids who are interacting with their particular environments were they with another teacher or in another place, they may not have been flagged. But the important thing is that being identified that way by your teacher then sets off this whole kind of course of interventions and reactions and things that form your identity and that form other kids' um, ideas about who you are and that form a collective kind of understanding of how we deal with harm, how we manage suffering, how we interpret challenging behaviors. Um, and though it's a close study, of those four kids, I think the most common misunderstanding about the book is that its aim is to enhance the educational experiences of that small minority. Actually, that's not the point of the book. That is one of the things that will happen. But the main point of the book is not what is happening to these four kids, but what are all the other kids learning from the way that we are responding to these four kids and how instead could our response to these four kids be an opportunity to do a very different kind of teaching and learning about how we manage harm, how we reduce suffering, how we identify structures that are harming us, that people are having very, very reasonable psychological and physical reactions to that are showing up as behaviors. And so all of that is an extension of those two kind of you know, core stories. And there are other examples of stories that people have told me where it's a story of an individual child, but really the story is about how do we shift structures to enhance belonging for everybody. And this kid is actually offering us this beautiful opportunity to pay attention to something that was otherwise invisible. Thank you. Uh, as as we uh, shift the mic to Thea real quickly, I wonder if uh, you, Thea, might might take that a little bit broader to talk about the dynamics uh, that Carla mentioned about how we institutionally commit ourselves to a certain kind of justice that requires uh, private responsibility for self-advocacy and requires institutions to respond in particular way as though these private problems or problems constructed as private are the exceptions rather than the rule. Yeah. Um, there's so much to sort of think and say here. Uh, and I, I actually just really want to say, sort of segue also by saying something about Carla's book, because I think 
The thing that you also add to the conversation, Carla, is this notion that um, that teachers have to be love, right? I think you've taken a really lovely kind of leap and jump to actually add another component to this question about freedom, justice, and belonging, which is love, which is something we don't like to talk about a lot in, you know, our fancy educational settings and academic settings. But I'd take that into, I, I hope this isn't a kind of circuitous answer to your question, um, because I was thinking forward or forward to, you know, my second book, Unsettled Belonging, and the story I started with about these parents in this space. And um, I'm interested also in how those individual, like, I was, I think one of the things I learned in that work was that we also really have to think about what we mean by freedom. And so there's a really fundamental way that the discourses around, um, and I ended up really in this one school focusing on Palestinian youth in particular, but the discourses around Palestinian youth used free, used the used freedom as a um, as a a, a kind of uh, so freedom was something that was used to racial concepts of freedom ended up racializing Palestinian youth and their communities because the concepts of freedom were so much about our, you know, sort of a certain set of liberal multicultural discourses about what it means to be Americans and to be free. And that what it means to be free, free is to be seen as an individual, not bound by one's culture. And there were all these ways that kind of the definitional, um, uh, really that what what were taken to be definitions of, of, of being American were used as, um, you know, as barriers to seeing the Palestinian youth. So the so my big for example is, you know, when we started this after school club with with Arab American youth because they were asking us to kind of have a space to. To, to work against these images. Um, we, um, the principal says to me, oh, I'm, I'm so happy you'll be giving these girls voice. Mm. He'd never spoken clearly with any of the young women that we were working with, um, you know, very outspoken young women. But this is some, this kind of the ways that these ideas of freedom and American freedom were really and continue to be leveraged um, as a way to, justify uh, military action, right? Laura Bush famously talked about freeing, quote unquote, women of cover, um, which then doesn't allow us to see see people. And I also think, again, it's really interesting to me the moments when, I mean, we talk all the time in this country right now about trauma. Everybody has trauma. But the young men who had come out of a war zone in Palestine and another one who'd come out of a war zone in Lebanon were seen as dangerous, violent, anti-American, et cetera. Like nobody ever used that frame of trauma to interpret them because they were already being interpreted through these other lenses. So, um, so I do think there's a way in which kind of the individual in, in these what I think are fundamentally racializing discourses, the individual is centered as the locus of everything, as if that person is is disconnected from these 
from these broader structures, right? Um, that's another place I really draw on philosophers. I mean, Charles Mills's work on the racial contract has been fundamental to kind of me, helping me see um, the ways that lines get drawn between, you know, the fully human and the less than fully human. And the less than fully human is the person who's tethered by all these other things, right? In, the, in my case, right? They're tied to culture. They're um you know, they're unable to act agentically because of their collect the collective. Um, and and I think um I mean interestingly, the parallel to things like the ways we think about uh disability are maybe in some ways the the opposite, or not, I don't want to say the opposite, but it's so deeply individualized, right? That disability lives within the, the individual person. And again, is not a consequence of the way we've structured society, the way we've structured schools, the ways we've created a, a normal curve as if that is a thing that lives in the, in the world rather than something that's humanly constructed that inevitably um, leaves some people out. So I don't know if that's, that's helpful or answers your question, but I think I'll, I'll stop. Yeah. I would that. like to say something to build on what she said that circles back to the question in a different kind of way, which is some of these ideas feel like such common sense and yet are so difficult for people to wrap their heads around. Like if you're thinking about belonging and inclusion, how's that not a community? How are those as ideas? How do they not require a collective? Like how do you get belonging and inclusion? when you rely on individual families to use whatever resources they do or don't have to figure out how their particular kid is going to be accommodated or not. It absolutely makes no sense for things like including kids in schools and giving them access to all the full benefits of being alive and being human to, to limit that as a private issue is so, um, as a as an idea makes no sense, right? A kid cannot possibly belong or be included without the collective of people around them having a key and core idea that this person is invaluable, this person is whole, this person deserves every dignity, every right, every opportunity that any of the rest of us have. So the idea that you could ever have belonging or inclusion without a collective commitment to the idea that every person, you know, without exception, no matter what they ever do, deserves that, that is actually how I think about it and define freedom, which is so very, very different than the American idea of freedom, which is everybody does what they want. And it's every person, you know, kind of fighting for themselves. I, I'll never understand that as an idea of freedom. And so, you know, educators really wrestle. The second they hear freedom, they think it means kids get to do whatever they want. There's no there's no world in which freedom is possible with every person doing what they want. So moving, always moving away from private individual toward collective, we all commit to the idea that every person has the right the the unalien you know inalienable right to belong is a very 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 hard shift but ones that it's a shift that young children are very naturally uh able to make i really struggle with educators but young children get this as an idea so easily um that that's why i concentrate on let's just not unteach that let's just not model its opposite all the time when we're around children. 
thank you both for those uh, incredible answers. This puts me in mind of so many kinds of uh, intellectual work that is coming out and being published. Sam Moyne has a new book just released on Cold War liberalism, in which that idea of like a negative freedom or like freedom as, you know, that butts up against like the the typical definition of license is becomes entrenched in the sort of uh, American ideas. Libby Anchor has uh, a book that came out a couple of years ago, Ugly Freedoms, um, that that talks about these two different uh the ways in which freedom has been used to justify settler colonialism, climate destruction, blah, blah, blah. So like, it's, it's really, it's could not be more timely. And I am always stuck in a position. I'm working on a book chapter, like just before this meeting that deals with similar issues about, uh, about the way in which sort of something like a national commitment to justice through education reform becomes a commitment to providing the minimum resources required for those who have to those harmed by injustice to do justice to themselves in a weird way that requires nothing from anyone else in an ideal uh, set of circumstances. And it's so totally at odds with what you just named in which anyone's individual right requires everyone else's work, labor, protection, etc. So it requires something from anyone. Anyway, that's not... Let me ask uh, uh, a question to get us back on track, which is, how does your lens as a philosopher, how does the work of philosophical thought and practices uh, enter into these uh, conversations for you or in, into the scholarship for you? Period. Uh, Carla, would you like to go first? And then we can go over to Thea. You know, I didn't realize this was radical, but when I was at Rutgers being trained as a teacher, we had mandatory philosophy classes as part of our teacher ed program. Um, Dr. Girelli was the chair of the department at the time. James Girelli he was like a you know critical scholar <laughs> coming out of an era and he was a philosopher. And so we had a mandatory ethics course um, as, as part of teacher ed. We had an actual philosophy course as a mandatory teacher education course. Those are books that I've kept. And, and I didn't know that that was different. Um, I didn't know that that was unusual as part of a teacher ed experience. Of course, I know that now, but I, this is the first time I've been invited to think about all the ways that that really shaped, like, because that was my foundation in learning to teach I've never really given thought before this moment to how much of an impact that has had on how I think about the relationship between what we do and the ideas and frameworks that drive those actions. And so, of course, there's always the back and forth between do we change teachers practice and that changes their ideas or do we change their ideas and that changes their practice? And I know that's complicated. It kind of goes both ways, but I always am thinking about philosophical frameworks as I'm making moment to moment decisions in my interactions with three, four and five-year-olds in a given day. And I think that is because it was a core part of how I was trained as a teacher. But I'll let you say more, Thea, because I think it drives your work a lot more specifically. Yeah, I think it does drive my work pretty specifically. I mean, as I said before, you know, I, with my, my first book, it was really a rethinking of my dissertation project 
And part of it was because I came, when I came to the end of the dissertation, I realized I was hearing these, um, I was hearing these ideas about justice kind of circulating. I was doing work with teachers to schools and teachers who were actively trying to address the differences that made a difference in their, in their schools. And I kind of got to the end of the dissertation as I think maybe sometimes people do. It was a, a very fine dissertation, but the questions that now interested me were a little different than those I went in with. And, um, and it was really Iris Young, you know, the late Iris Young, who helped me sort of understand that, that what I was hearing as these kind of like conflicts and rattling around about like, what does justice mean in relationship to um, the, the differences that mattered in these contexts, that they were situated political dialogues, that it wasn't what the philosophers were, I mean, the saying up here, but it was that people were actually wrestling with um, claims about what a just space is. In that case, I came to sort of think about an integrated environment as a just environment, um, a, an, an environment that, um, you know, foregrounds cultural recognition as a just environment, mm-hmm. uh, equal standards um, are, are adjust. That was very much the start of the whole standards movement in the late 90s, early uh, 2000s, equal standards are just. And then I got to look at, well, when those claims are kind of in, on the ground, why is it so difficult, right? And, and the difficulty was uh, I, because often the claims were, were framed around the individuals and the, the social structure was invisible. The, the, you know, the impossibility of what does it mean to have equal standards for everyone when we are all different? Um, um, Iris Young's kind of parsing of five faces of oppression. I don't know if Carla got out of a class of mine without reading that. I think I make everybody <laughs> read that because again, I think she gives us a language for thinking about, you know, she gives us a language for pushing back against I'm more oppressed than you, or you're more oppressed than me, right? Because we can really parse what are the different kind of forms that oppression takes and how might we understand, you know, understand that. Um, Martha Minow, uh, the legal scholar, really helped me think about, you know, relation, you know, sort of the relationality of difference and the ways that what what seem like solutions, right? Do we accommodate or not accommodate people again? Are because we're not looking at the structures that make belonging and inclusion impossible in a particular kind of way. Um, I was thinking back to what you were saying, Carla, about like belonging is always about the collective, but it's also about you know, part of that is for forming and making decisions about what the collective is mm. and the ways that the collective has to have enough flexibility or has to address power and, and kind of its normative assumptions in ways that can create new openings. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think philosophy is really relevant. And again, I think, you know, there are many, many people I could cite, but Mills's work has been critical for me thinking about um what kinds of what forms of personhood are on offer to people and what are the ways that um you know i i've been doing work in lebanon also for a while and really thinking about how kindergarten children five year olds are getting messages very early on about what's on offer for them about the kind of people that they are going to be allowed to be in in society. So that again, I think from from the get go, um, 
young people are learning about their place in society. They're learning their civic identities and they're pushing and they're pushing back. Um, and I think that's for me where more anthropology and philosophy come together because anthropologists, we, we would say that, that learning is always learning forms of personhood, right? You're never learning the, you know, just the three, whatever, reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? You're, you're always learning, um, you know, am I worthwhile? Do I, can I, can I, and do I have authority in this situation? What's expected of me? Is silence expected of me or is actually rabble rousing sort of and and fighting for justice part of what's expected of me? Um, So I think philosophy really helps me think through uh, some of the real life, life dilemmas of everyday life. Um, And also just to say, and really think about what are, this is the other piece of young, Young's work, really thinking about what are people asking for, right? And to, to understand that mm-hmm. everyone is asking. Um, you know, I came to really understand the ways that for, you know, the Palestinian youth are, were often seen as, you know, dangerous to democracy. Like the goal is assimilation and accommodation. The goal is to not be critical. And yet it's precisely, and the goal is to belong, right? To, to come to belong to the U.S. And in fact, I've been now arguing for a long time, along with my close colleague, Andrea Dernes, that in fact, transnational affiliations are productive for democracy and democ- democratic citizenship. That, that, be- that belonging to one nation is actually potentially really a bad idea, right? And that the flexibility that people have as they move across boundaries, either imaginatively or physically, they, they learning about the ways that you know, what rights look like in one place and not in another um, really strengthens young people's ability to kind of advocate for their their community and their collective. Mm-hmm. Um, so for many Palestinians, it was it's really going back and forth and understanding a space in Palestine where they have no rights at all, where it's complete, you know, really controlled that allows them to come back and understand, uh, you know, what allows them to na- analyze that situation because they have rights, they have the experience of that, and also to critique the experience here. So, you know, those are productive, like, and young kids, I mean, I see that you see this, Carla, right? Little, this little, I'll never forget this little boy I call Malik, this little Palestinian uh, five-year-old who had recently come from Syria, so multiple displacements, refugee in Syria after the civil war. And he's in Lebanon and the teacher does something, which is basically a kind of form of collective punishment. And he stands up and he says, no, that's not fair. Like we, she was tattooing, you know, kids arms and, you know, then the class got too noisy and she's like, I'm done. I'm not doing it. And these two tables were like, had been waiting. This little child stands up and says, we were quiet. Like we, we deserve this. Right. And I'm like, I mean, there they are right there, you know, in a, in a kind of constrained situation, this little child is standing up and saying, no, we have rights here. Um, so I don't want to lose that kind of seeing what kids are doing as that too. Anyway, I'll be quiet. See, I think what, what they, no, I mean, what they just did, like you see how she moved between being able to kind of think and cite these really core philosophical writers and ideas, and then circle it through her work around transnational migration and belonging and end on this story of a tiny moment of, you know, a five-year-old doing this act and how all of that is connected like I'm having a, a really emotional reaction listening to her because I'm realizing how much it mattered for me to be a student 
of her ability to do that. Um, how much just watching what she just modeled, right? It wasn't, it's not what we read, it's not just what we read. It's not just the ideas, but watching the model of how she moved between here's a core framework and idea philosophically. Here's how it, I'm thinking about it in these broad national, you know, national, international, global political structures. And here's how it shows up in the day-to-day, you know, day daily lives of human beings. Watching an educator kind of do that. And, and while I was still in the classroom, having that model helped me to immediately go into a classroom and see those moments as what she's calling situated political dialogues, right? So it's also something about the power of teaching and learning, even in this trajectory of my own luck ending up as one of her students. Thank you so much. I think we're students of each other now, Carla. Maybe now, not then. <laughs> yes, yes, we are now. <laughs> I'll tell you the things I learned when you came and visited my class. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's really... Thank you. Ideas matter. They do. But everyday actions matter too. Mm -hmm. They're so related Mm -hmm. to each other. And I think that we don't, we don't trust teachers with the ideas. We don't invite them to wrestle with ideas. You know, we teach them things to do. We teach them practical, practical moves to make as if not having core principles and frameworks that guide what you're doing. So then when when individual situations come up, because I have this lens that they, uh, you know, presents around seeing a thing always as a situated political dialogue, right? So when there's a parent who wants to pull their kid out of a classroom where there's a, another really difficult kid, the, these ideas are what helps me to see that moment is not just what am I going to do in this moment, but if this is a situated political dialogue that little kids are watching and witnessing What do I want to model in that dialogue in conversation that creates the possibility of a generation who will grow up not to be a parent who wants to pull their kid out of that class, but instead a parent who sees every kid in that room as of equal shared responsibility. And we are here to do the work of every kid getting to belong. So I'm not going to, you know, save my kid, but I'm going to instead realize I'm robbing my own child of the opportunity to learn from our model of how we respond and react to this other suffering, struggling kid. I really admire that both of you think about and trouble words and think about where they're expansive and helpful um, or where they might need to be turned on their head like troublemaker. Um, And I really appreciate, and you just highlighted this, Carla, the way in which you do it contextualized that when you ask someone to be love, your paragraph that goes along with that in the book asks people to be love in really difficult situations where one doesn't. I remember I was writing about it, having just um, rushed my children out of the house to get ready for school, and I was not being love in that moment. And I appreciate that you reminding me to do it, but also acknowledging <laughs> that this is no light ask that you're doing. I think often as philosophers, we say, you know, be kindness, be care, be this, be that. We don't necessarily, even if we define it in meaningful ways, we don't necessarily bring it down to what it really looks like in the empirical challenges. Um, I also want to appreciate the back and forth between the two of you and the 
chance to do this work together. And that feels really important that we don't, we cannot be love on our own. Um, it's too hard, at least in my experience. Um, I want to turn us a little bit and you've kept us with this always in the conversation to what if we think about structures, if you could create a better structure, um, a structure that is better, but also accommodates for, you know, the ongoing shifts that need to happen. What would you ask for of our school systems? What kinds of policies would you, um, if you got to be our superintendent, put in place for both of you? I would never want to, I would, I don't have any interest in that question. (laughs) I let a job I want. I don't think that those are the powerful people inside of schools at all. So I want nothing to do with that. So I don't talk to, you know, I don't talk to superintendents. I don't interact with that level of, I don't think that's where any kind of transformation takes place. Um, So it's very hard for me to enter into that question, which I think is also probably why I don't really deal with policy in general, as kind of an idea, right? We know from history that people act from their ideas and beliefs, no matter the law, no matter the policy or the rules. So I tried to think about what are the shifts in how we be with each other? How? Are, what are the shifts in our everyday relations with each other that we try out, that we practice, that we model inside of any public institution, including a school, Um, that's my kind of area of, um, commitment, right? My area of belief and, and I find children are the easiest because they are already naturally good at trying out new and different ways of being when they're invited to. So I'm really compelled by Thea's, you know, earlier phrase around what, what forms of personhood are people being offered? That's actually a question that daily kids can kind of be invited into, that teachers can be invited into. So that's that's where I'm most compelled is like, what can I offer and model and try to encourage people to try out in their everyday relationships with each other in any public place um, is, is the only thing I care about. Can I try to pitch that question a little bit differently to you, Carla, and see uh, if that is uh, productive at all? Um, Thinking about your interest in people who work and exist in schools, I'm wondering if you have a way of uh, thinking about the way that our sort of education policy framework prevents the kind of, uh, prevents teachers in particular and administrators from seeing themselves engaged in practices that might be harmful or uh, prevents them from sort of realizing other ways of cultivating relationality in their schools. Essentially, like, how does policy uh, let let people believe that they are acting in the overall interest of justice in ways that are nonetheless harmful to the people who are actually sitting in front of them in their classrooms. Yeah. Well, so, you know, of course, education is one sphere under the whole umbrella of injustice, right? And so educational policy just kind of acts, it makes decisions out of 
what is above it, right? Which is our general structures, which are kind of our set of original sins around some people getting to be fully human and some people not, right? So everything kind of trickles down from that basic idea that some people get to be full human beings and some people don't. That shapes every kind of, you know, policy and practice that comes underneath that. And so that is why I'm not, of course, that then there's a set of constraints that exist that make people behave in a certain ways. But but I think then the I, the thing to intervene on is not this level of policy, which is a symptom of the overarching illness, just a symptom, right? I'm not interested in intervening in that. I'm interested in intervening on this core idea and belief that some people deserve to be fully human and other people don't have that as a as a right. Um, so I can intervene on that idea with three-year-olds, which I find much more productive than intervening on one, one policy constraint that is shifting whatever, right? But that doesn't mean that I don't, that I ignore the fact that of course people are constrained in how they move and act, but there are no constraints on how we allow ourselves to treat the people that we interact with every day. There's no policy, there's no law, there's no, there's nothing that constrains our ability to be able to see another person as fully human. We're we're impacted and prevented and, and taught badly around our ability to do that. But that to me, intervening on that as a core philosophical belief is more productive to, to me personally. I'm glad other people work on the other stuff. I know that somebody needs to. I just don't want to. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. <laughs> It's so funny, Carla, because that's also the question for me that was like, you know, always has me puzzling. And I was thinking about how um, early on in my career, Annenberg was putting out this whole thing on um, equity and excellence at scale. And they asked me to write a piece that came from Elusive Justice. And basically, I was like, uh, we should not be thinking at scale. Like at scale is a problem. <laughs> I mean, that was my conclusion was. And now the most the piece I most recently published in comparative ed re- reviews called Against Implications. Yes. And it's really sort of trying to get um, the international humanitarian education stuff to say, like, stop with this. Stop with coming in with these policies up here that have no connection to actually the very fragile and daily work that people are trying to do that. And in fact, the ways that those pushes for, I mean, really they're, they're fictions, right. That, that, that the education sector can, if the education sector focusing on reading, writing, reading, writing, and math can resolve the problems of entrenched poverty, (laughs) racism, you know, war. I mean, we're talking about war, right, in these contexts. So, you know, again, there I'm saying like, okay, let's stop with the, you know, stop with this kind of this complex, which uh, this industrial complex, which is really, again, as Carla just said, you know, it's inseparable from the broader structural injustices that uh, are local and global. Um, I mean, again, I think if policies I think that the structure would have to change radically the social structure before we got the kinds of policies that would support um, healthy schools. And and I would say that at a policy level, the two things anyone could focus on was really excellent funding and um, uh, believing that teachers are, you know, full 
fully capable human beings who could kind of make decisions and act and learn the communities they're in and, you know, and, get, and parents being part of that. I think the truth is that all the really, for me, all the really hopeful, incredible work that goes on in educational institutions, be their they schools or other, is really coming when it's born of a collective. So I think that's the uh, the other tradition is a long tradition of education being a site for resistance. Um, I'm working on a project in, in Beirut right now, in Lebanon right now, where we're doing oral histories of Palestinian teachers who taught through the Civil War, who are part of the first generation of, of the Nakba. And really, like, you know, education has been foundational to Palestinian resistance and sort of trying to understand moments that they were able to um you know, there to there's a teacher who told us about, you know, he basically created topographical maps of the communities in Palestine that young people had come from so that they could learn about where they were, where their families were from. Um, he wrote 600 books about Palestine because there was no curriculum, right? So, you know, that is the, that's the, you know, that's not really policy, right? That's movement. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes movements then have policy within them, but not written writ large in that way. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Like if I did want to be more cooperative with the original question and ask, what is it I would hope to change about schools? And the only reason I chose schools, I choose schools as a site is because that's where children are right now. I'd be more than happy, in fact, happier if they weren't. <laughs> right, like school is nothing but a challenge to the work that I believe children are capable of doing, and the power that I believe teachers have to support the work that children are doing. Like that's the work that I'm interested in. It happened to do it inside of schools because that happens to be currently where children are gathered together. But if there was anything I would like to fundamentally change about schools besides gathering children elsewhere, not in a school, right? If I could change that, I would do that. But minus that, I would do changing the core purposes that we have for school away from what Thea is talking about, which is this notion that we can teach we can teach certain skills for a future that we can't even predict, or right? an economic future that we can't even that that's the purpose of schools right now. And instead, think about schools are sites as sites where children are doing work, really good, important, beautiful work in figuring out who they are, what they want to learn, who they want to, what they want to offer in this world and educators to support and encourage them together in figuring that out. That would be a shift in the, in the core purpose of what the institution could do if it has to be an institution at all, which I would prefer it wasn't. Well, and I think Carla, also just to what you're saying, I mean, as long as we're still on that, you know, skills and economic, whatever, we reproduce exactly the, I mean, this, this which belief is the point. systems we have, right? Which is the point, right? <laughs> right. We, we end up with like, oh, yeah. we've provided that. I mean, you know, it's like the fictions are unbelievable, right? You know, you teach little three, four and five-year-olds in Arabic and English literacy in a context in which they have no food. They're, you know, they're coming 
again, 30% of the kids in this school I was in were displaced from Syria recently. And, and then it's like, you know, then what ends up happening is that the discourse that, well, the problem is the parents or the problem is the community or the problem is in the environment gets perpetuated. We have the same versions of that in the United States. We have the same versions everywhere that, you know, but, but we, we, you know, we keep at this game, right? Um, the game right now of like uh, everyone's of learning loss, right? P- pandemic learning loss. <laughs> first of all, why would we start third graders on a third grade level if they hadn't been in school since first grade? Right? Like, I mean, like this is just there's a level at which the, and I think, and maybe this is also where maybe philosophy or ideas could help. Like the language is stripped down to nothing, right? to really meaningless um, repetition, right? And and then the, you know, then people in positions of power get to pretend like, well, we did our jobs. It was the teachers, it was the parents, it was the kids, like um, looking away from all the wrong, you know, at all the wrong things. Thank you for uh, the language of fictions and for uh, thinking about the other purposes that schools might serve. Kara's going to... Uh, uh, transition to the last question in a second, but I I just wanted to chime in here because this this entire thing makes me so angry. Um, the thing the the thing that is most galling to me about the use of fictions in this way is, and I'm thinking specifically about the learning loss thing here, but it's a much broader policy problem since 1965, if not earlier. Uh, that the the fears about the socioeconomic impact of learning loss is all predicated on the specific relationship between certain levels of economic or educational achievement and certain kinds of socioeconomic uh, outcomes generated in the past, which is to say always a condition of injustice. So the idea that you are going to use these particular skills and aptitudes, give them on an equal basis to all individual children, and thereby produce a, a situation of justice, which everyone acknowledges has never existed in the world, depends upon the absolute continuity of the system of injustice that is supposed to overcome. It is, it is a literal investment in keeping everything the same and pretending that you're doing a project of transformation and rant. <laughs> Correct. But once you know that, Anger is one appropriate response, right? There's other there there are other responses that people can be invited into, which is once you know that, then what you can do is transform your everyday relationships inside the system that's trying to trick you into behaving certain kinds of ways. And those tiny things are not small. They're everything. They're everything. You know, marching is not the only way to transform and resist, right? Um saying particular affirming things to children day in and day out when you know what the system is designed to teach them to do and be it's not small those are those are big act, big acts so that knowledge that you have can be can be um i don't want to use the word paralyzing trying to use something that's not ableist right it can stop us from acting or it can really invite us into creativity, you know, creativity around what it means to, to behave in opposition 
to this thing that's trying to trick us all to end up exactly where we started. Yeah. So I'm going to close by saying both of you are so good at naming the the kind of big things that are at stake, the big ideas, and then finding those huge, small ways of being creative in the face of them and creating what I'm sure um, you've given testimony to this, Carla, and I'm sure it's the same in your classrooms, are very different um, kinds of spaces for people to be together in. Um, so I know, Carla, from following you on Facebook that you've been changing the signage of schools as one of your many projects. Um, that's just one example. But can you give um, listeners a few ideas of ways in which you can creatively um, create communities that can be love uh, more holy? Yeah. It's like rowing, you know, a canoe up a waterfall is how I feel in the daily life of schools. And so the force is control, right, is offering kids um, the only version of personhood that's available is we tell you what to do with your bodies. You do those things with your bodies. And that's how safety is defined. Right. So that's the that's the waterfall. And so every day I'm like, what's, what are we, what's going to be the canoe today? Like how, you know, one step forward, three steps back. And so it's the tiniest things. It's yes, shifting every kind of sign that signals a don't do into a pay attention to what you're doing, right? So it's not line up, it's move with care, right? It's not don't eat in the library. It's, this is a special place, please take care of it right? Things that move us away from things we'll have to police when kids don't listen, which is what's going to happen, right? <laughs> like, so the kid's going to do the thing they're going to do. Now you want to either have a, police in, a policing interaction where there's been a violation of the a law and you have to now impose, you know, a, some kind of sanction versus there's an invitation to pay attention to and mind how you're using your freedom and your choices, and that requires a ton of teaching and learning. And we're going to wrestle together with the actions that take place in, in response to that, right? So it's every sign is moving away from do or don't and toward here's what this space needs. Please mind how you're trying to meet the needs of this particular space. So that's different in a library than it is in a cafeteria, than it is in a playwright. So moving toward care, uh, accountability to other human, you know, other people, accountability to the planet rather than accountability to authority. Right. So shifting signage, shifting language, mind your volume is very different than you're too loud. Be quiet. Right. Um, there are just those. So I think every kind of move that I'm trying to make is thinking about the foundational things that we're taking for granted in schools that send message after message to kids about who they are in relation to adults and other people and inviting them to be people who get to use their choices in responsible ways and get to mess that up a lot when they're young and get a lot of love and support and teaching <laughs> and learning rather than punishment and compliance, policing control. So every creative strategy possible to intervene on anything I see that signals to me a kid getting a message about who they are in the world that I don't 
want them to get. And so um, most of my writing recently has all the specific kinds of examples with like model posters of what I'm talking about, all of those kinds of things. But even just invitations that like, yeah, it is okay for a kid to sit out of class for 20 minutes in the library and have a moment of calm for no reason, just because they feel like they need that. That's fine. It's okay. Just every move toward, yeah, they're people and they have needs. And the thing that you're doing is not more important than the thing that they need. It's fine. That's the work. Thank you. And Thea? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was thinking about this question. You know, I think if we really want freedom, then we have to create spaces for agency and choice and kind of meaningful work. And, and that's, you know, that's, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this in terms, it's funny. I think there's a way in which I'm so much more constrained teaching in a higher ed setting than I ever was when I taught elementary school. Um, And I've really been, um, you know, really been trying to kind of dig deeply into thinking about how do I practice some of these same things in my own classroom and work at a, at, at a university which really kind of pushes against it. So, you know, you know, how do you, and I think, you know, students are kind of surprised, unfortunately, by um, the ways that, you know, I and, you know, some of many of my colleagues are trying to kind of shift those dynamics to model that in, in a classroom within the, you know, again, within these big constraints of what we're supposed to be doing. so, I mean, I, I think there was a point at which my syllabi had started looking like legal documents and they don't look like that anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't, you know, I, you know, how, how are we going to, you know, we, we make community agreements. We talk about the fact that the reality is we can't always meet our responsibilities all the time. You know, well, what are we going to do when we, when we don't meet them? Like, you know, that's the real work. It's not kind of like, uh, you know, either trying to, you know, lie to your professor or lie to your, co- your, your group mates about why you do, but it's about like, how do we show up? That's really, really hard work at the university. And there's a way in which I think until we start modeling that, you know, uh, at, in higher ed, we, you know, I mean, we have to be drawing from what the work that many of us do and that Carla's doing in elementary schools, right? Like pushing that up. Um, I also think in the work I've done with, you know, prospective teachers, to really help create opportunities for them to see what children know and can do. And so when I was at Rutgers, um, my um, dear friend and, you know, what I say is was my former work wife who's now going to be at, is now at teacher's college. So she can be my work wife again, but Beth Rubin and I um, created uh, an urban teaching, um, an urban teaching program where what we had all of our students go back into the schools they'd student taught in. And we did a lot of things, but the final semester, they went back to the schools they'd student taught in and ran youth participatory action research after after school clubs from elementary school to high school. And the goal of that work, I mean, of course the goal was, you know, in part to, in large part to create, you know, spaces for young people to do meaningful kind of work on questions that matter to them. But really the reason that Beth and I sort of initially conceptualized this as part of the teacher ed program was to give our students opportunities to see what young people knew and could do, which they couldn't see in their classrooms. And and I remember the first group, when they were trying to decide like how to recruit 
their students to this after school program, um, you know, there was some conversation about like only recruiting the kids who had, you know, shown up all the time, who were their excellent students. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like there was one student who was really, uh, you know, she was really drawn to what, you know, somebody Carla calls a troublemaker. Um, and I was like, invite that kid, right? And and of course, we know what happens, right? He led the entire project, right? He, And so I think that's a really, um, I, I think that I worked with community arts um, a lot because again, that's a space where people get to be creative. And, you know, and that work's happening everywhere. Um, a dear friend of mine who, I think you know Carla, Dana Abu Rahman, who's a former um, media f- a filmmaker who had moved to Beirut many, many years ago. And she, four years ago, decided she was going to stop being a documentary filmmaker and open a forest school in Lebanon. And I got to spend time there this year. And, you know, in a, in a country that has very little public open space, they have found this one little forest I mean, it's tiny. You can see the edges of it where they have access and they have this preschool that doesn't look like any other preschool because there is no reading writing curriculum there. It's the kids are out in the woods, you know, rain or shine. They read stories to them every day. They play. They take the direction from the children. Um, Those are beautiful spaces that people are are trying to model, you know, what we want. Right. And it's not just model to be what we want, as, Mm -hmm. as you might say. So I'm going to stop with that. Well, thank you both very much for these wonderful answers throughout the interview, and particularly these closing instances. It is really valuable to uh, remember to keep things close to the ground and look for active instances of the things that we are trying to become. So thanks for being here today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us in conversation with all thank of you. Thank you. And that's our show. A heartfelt thank you to Carla and Thea for their generous and delightful conversation today. As usual, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you happen to listen. If you have feedback for us directly, you can email us at thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. And to recommend future guests or topics for our show, including yourself and your interests, please use the Google form linked in the episode description. Until the next episode, and on behalf of Kara Furman as well, I'm Derek Gottlieb. We'll see you next time. Music